Hey everybody in Serial Killer Country, my name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I find a true crime story that resonated with us, and then I discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer and go deep into their childhood, lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then we'll get a little spooky and we'll learn something about cryptids and the supernatural. Yes. But before we get started with today's episode, I got to talk to you about a couple of things, you know, things that we need to pay the bills, <laughs> which is that we have a website. It's called whenkillersgetcaught.com. And there you can buy merch by just clicking on the store tab, which will take you to our store. We got beanies, blankets, stickers, T-shirts, all sorts of things. Goodness, we got a lot. Mm-hmm. You can get a blanket, too. Yes, I, I want to get the blanket. So actually. do I. I was looking at it. I was like, I kind of want this. I want to wrap myself <laughs> around it when I do the TikTok videos. <laughs> I want it so bad. Also, we are launching our Patreon on August 1st, 2021. We have four tiers that start at $5 a month up to $50 a month. And you get everything from discounts on merch, access to a Patreon-only Discord chat, a free extra podcast called Conspiracy Crypt, where Brian will inevitably annoy me at some point during this experience <laughs> that's my hope uh you can play video games with us on live stream yeah that's what we're gonna be doing and we have our first goal which brian has talked me into <laughs> which is when we have 500 patrons i have agreed to go stay in the lizzie borden house in the most haunted room in the lizzie borden house which is apparently the basement room because it is directly beneath the room where her father was murdered We'll do a live stream there, as well as participate in a ghost hunt. So you see you... the smile on my face. <laughs> it's very, it's very it's, exciting. It's not that I don't love ghost things. It's that I like to watch them on TV. I have no desire to be there when the ghost arrives. We will see. But listen, that's up to you all. If you want to see me deeply uncomfortable in this experience, I will gladly do it for you all. You'll get to see what a very scared Brittany looks like. Absolutely. And like, like, um, there's no obligation to get to the Patreon, but you know, if you want to support us and you like what we do here, you like hearing our voices and you like hearing us talk, then, you know, head over there. You can, like, you can, I think you can. At this point, people tell me all the time, they're like, I just listened to you to go to sleep. I'm like, <laughs> that's such a high compliment for me because that's what I do to other content creators that I enjoy. <laughs> I listen to them go to bed and I have to think like, oh, people do that for me. I am ASMR right now. Oh my I, God. I don't, know. Is I don't that think I'd be good at that. I'd be like bored after a little bit, but regardless, that is what we want to let you know about. These are all the things that we're doing. Very exciting things. Yes. And this week in true crime, I ended up sending you this link early because I had to save it. <laughs> I, I forgot about it. I just skimmed over a little bit. Uh, but what I happened to come across this week is that a Law & Order actor has been indicted for murder. How ironic. Ooh. Is it is it um, criminal intent or... <laughs> he was on SVU. Uh, his name is Isaiah Stokes. Oh. So it was... Wait, was his crime a special victim unit or no? He was a guest actor there. Uh, he was indicted for murder in what is like the article literally says a brazen afternoon shooting. So, yeah, yeah uh, it happened in Queens and the indictment came on July 17th, 2021. He's accused of firing a gun into a parked car in Jamaica, Queens. The 
on February 7th. What? What? Just... Uh, the guy in question died from the injuries. Oh. Uh, and that's well, too, because in New York City, like, guns are big deal. Like, if you if you are caught carrying a gun, mm-hmm. you get, like, 10, 20 years. Oh, wow. So... To actually, it's to curb the guy, the murder rate. Yeah. So yeah, um, they reached out to I get like CNN reached out to his people to see if there was a statement. Nothing's been said, but it was just the irony that made me go, "Huh, you used to be on a TV show that talked about murder." <laughs> he was a guest star actor. Mm-hmm. I guess that's how you say it. Um, and so no one knows why he did this thing, huh? He just shot some random dude in his car. That's yeah, we don't have a lot of information on it right now. Um, he was also on Power, uh, Rescue Me, Boardwalk Empire, Blue oh. Bloods. He does a lot of like cop shows, or so. Oh, the irony is so thick in this one, you can taste it. Yeah, he hasn't been in that much stuff. He only f- like his first thing he was even in was in 2006. But yeah, that's the headline right now. So yeah, he was definitely his last thing that he was in at all was uh the tv show power hmm so yeah mm-hmm. i guess he was trying to do a little something something you know be an actor it's not really working out for him <laughs> he, he was he was rehearsing a role that he was going to be playing <laughs> that's, what it was, that's what it was yes that's what the was guy the, the guy didn't really die he's just you know they're just doing a whole um oh apparently at first he was trying to be a singer and he had a song called i love you isaiah oh and it played for a long time he also had another song called pleasures paradise that also did pretty well and then he was an actor so there you go go figure yeah well that was my story for the week okay guess what what i have an actual crime this week all right well it's someone who committed a crime whatever anyway so my headline reads uh three decades later georgia man is charged with killing boy okay so this takes place in Marietta, Marietta, Georgia. Marietta, Marietta, Georgia. Um, so I only know Georgia city names because I because family was down there. I th- I think I know a couple, not really. I think I've, I know Marietta, and then Savannah. So, okay, Savannah. I've driven through Georgia Macon? a lot. No, which is where my apparently my great great grandmother's from, hmm. but everybody says it's awful now. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, maybe that's what she loved. Yeah. Well, if you... also probably racism. <laughs> it it I was, was probably say... like the early yeah. 1900s. It probably didn't feel too safe to live down south. I was about to say, if you remember from the Lake Lanier episode. Yep. <laughs> so yeah. Oh goodness. But um, yeah. So I guess uh, so a con- a convicted sex offender. He's been arrested 30 years after his crime uh, of a of assaulting an eight-year-old child a boy like what way like he punched him or uh so no (laughs) no i was gonna be mad at him for just being a bad person but now i'm mad at him for lots of reasons yeah so his name is uh james michael coates he's 56 uh so he's facing charges that are murder aggravated child M word, um, oh. and this take this took place in uh, 1988. So, like I said, 30 years ago. Oh, um, so we just yeah, got you. Okay, that's why it's news. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I like this one because you know justice is served. 
finally, you know, you got to, you know, it's, it's hopefully going to be served. Right. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was taken in custody on Friday, was it Friday? Um, on Wednesday, actually. So he got, he got stopped at a traffic stop. So when he rode in an Uber, he was riding in an Uber, he got stopped. Okay. I don't know how that happens. How'd you get? Well, the Uber probably got stopped. Maybe they checked everybody's ID in the car. Maybe. But um, or maybe he, they had a warrant out, or they were just they found they found out who he was. Um, so basically, he was he was arrested after guess what DNA evidence collected from the crime scene linked him to the killing. Is this the guy who did a D a DNA test like? Recently? The twenty three and me, I don't think. Yeah, there I saw one recently where someone did a twenty three and me and they discovered that he was a rapist like many years later. Oh my god, no, but I think I, I think I remember you talk saying something about that, but no, 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 no. Not this guy. Not like that? Okay. No. I don't know how they got the DNA evidence. Um it may have been through a twenty three and me or ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um that's becoming a, a real hot spot right now. I know, right? Or like what'll happen is that somebody else will take a test and then like I mean ultimately that's how they kinda it, it's kind of messed up. Like Dennis Rader sort of got himself the the lens turned on him. Mm. And then what they did was they used his daughter's pap smear results oh. to get the DNA evidence linking him to the murder. So I guess it's kind of similar. Listen, they do anything to find the people. Yeah, so yeah, I guess. Not even mad about it because um, was a bad dude. Yeah, uh, the child's name, uh, the boy's name was uh, Joshua Harmon. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, so I'm just glad that they actually finally caught this guy. After I mean, it took 30 years, but hey, you know, sometimes it takes a while to. Serve justice, as you could say. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um. So I don't know if you know. Well, you don't know about this case, but uh, apparently this kid Joshua he was reported missing, uh, May fifteenth, nineteen eighty eight. After he didn't re- return home for dinner, Aww. after several hours of searching, his body was found in a wooded area near the apartment where he lived. So, and I guess um. Coats. He lived in the same apartment building gotcha. as him. So they always do that. Yeah. So it's a sad story, but at least justice may be served soon. There you go. He's going to sentencing. I think it's a wait. No, he's going to trial Friday. No, announced Friday. They announced it on Friday. So I'm not sure when, but soon, hopefully. This happens, but yeah, that's uh, that's uh, what I got. Well, there we go. For once, I'm not the downer in the group. <laughs> Downing right off the bat. Let's go. But I suppose ultimately, what I'm going to be talking about today is a little bit. I don't. Uh, is it a downer? I don't know. What we're going to say here is that um, I have been on a tear recently when it comes to the content I'm consuming, and I've been looking at massacres. And I can't talk about, well, I'll just ask the question. You've heard the term, don't drink the Kool-Aid, right, Brian? Yes. And you know where it's from, don't you? Of course I do. Mm -hmm. For anyone who doesn't, maybe you're not from America and you're listening, it originates from this week's case, which was the largest number of American deaths in a single non-natural event 
up until September 11th, 2001, which is the Jonestown Massacre on November 18th, 1978, when over 900 members of the San Francisco-based cult religious group called the People's Temple all drank a poisoned Flavorade. I'll explain why we have the quote wrong leader in the story. Thank you. I'm so glad you got that. <laughs> Not because uh, they thought they were about to be taken to space or to heaven, but because their leader, Jim Jones, had become so paranoid that his utopia would be destroyed that he ended up murdering a government official and he was convinced the U.S. government was coming to kill him. The path for this guy was that of someone who was considered to be a progressive socialist civil rights activist into a paranoid cult leader. And it's an interesting path. Hmm, that is, that's a, that's a detour. Exactly. <laughs> that's a great detour. Crowd. And uh, I begin like I do every week by discussing the man behind the madness. So he was born James Warren Jones in Crete, Indiana on May 13th, 1931 to Welsh and Irish parents. His father was James Thurman Jones, a World War II vet, and his mother was Lynetta Putman. His parents were not exactly happy and in love. Uh, Jones said that his father was so engrossed in his own pain that it affected his health uh, very negatively. And his mother financially supported the family by working in factories. And Jim definitely got uh, his rebellious streak from mom. She cursed, she smoked cigarettes, drank alcohol, she was active in the local union... Seems like my kind of gal. Uh, on top of that, though, they didn't go to church, which was almost as bad as her being a drinking, smoking unionist. What, what do you mean not going to church is bad? That's what it was in that time period. You oh, don't okay, go to true. church? No. Got no, me neither. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, this was kind of the worst time to have a child in rural America as uh, they were walking right into the Great Depression. And the family really struggled to make ends meet on just mom's income. In 1934, they moved to a slightly larger town in Indiana called Lynn, but they moved into a house that had, like, no working plumbing. So it was a pretty tough time. Um, in Lynn, uh, Jim started going to church with a neighbor, and he really liked this preacher there. It was a Nazarene church, and he was really into the fact that, like, this guy got up there every weekend, he wore these satin robes, and the congregation, like, all were like, ooh. Mm -hmm. And so as a child, he was just like, this is amazing. Um, he was alone a lot. He's only kid. And so he read about pretty much every religion that he could. He also started reading books from Stalin, Marx, Zerdong, Gandhi, Hitler, like everybody. Oh, so he was well, just a mixed bag. Yeah. But you know what's like really messed up? I also read a lot of the same books that uh, Jim Jones read just because I was interested in it. Like Mein Kampf terrible book <laughs> he's really not a good writer hitler bad writer bad guy bad writer you know but like i just wanted to know i was like this this is something that people say i shouldn't read and that's in my high school i went to a catholic high school but mm. that's what my librarian believed too she's like if you can give me a good enough reason i'll get it for you oh she's like she didn't, didn't believe we used to have like banned book week mm -hmm. and that was when it was like there was a week where she pulled like all these books that were banned and she like put them out in the library and stuff. Oh, you know, so strangely enough, Chris, a super religious school, but, but you had, had uh, a cool library. You had a riff day of banned books. We even had a whole section on like demonology. Oh my God. And I definitely read all of those books. I would have too. I was like, let me just study up on this. That's what I first read about the Warrens. <laughs> I was like 13. 
Um, but uh, eventually, as like a, a preteen, we're talking here, he joins a Pentecostal church, and he he filled his like lack of friend having childhood with studying the church. Then, like, so this is even before he's like ten, eleven years old. He's like like a second or third grader at this point, like preaching as, but he's playing. Mm. He's like draping a sheet over his shoulders, like walking around the house, pretending to read the Bible, pretending to heal the chickens. Oh my God. Um, Chicken fly, fly, chicken fly. This this went on for a couple years. Um, And his mother was okay with this. She was like, all right, whatever. He's just a kid until he started having like end of, end of days nightmares. And she's like, you can't go to church anymore. But she couldn't really stop him once he got a little older. So then by the time he was 16, he was out preaching like on the street corners in Richmond, Indiana. His mom and dad had split finally because they had never really liked each other. Mm -hmm. And he was living with mom in Richmond. So he would slick back his hair and stand on like a busy sidewalk in the middle of black neighborhoods. And he would start like speaking and drawing these big crowds. Like, it's 1948 now, so the area is still very segregated. Um, Was this, like, the only neighborhood he he could, like... This was a choice. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And that... Unfortunately, he learns how to weaponize this choice way later on. But at this point, this was a choice. uh, Because in Indiana, they had forced, like, desegregation. But... It was very recent. So, like, it's really hard to force, you know, force people to desegregate. Absolutely. And, like, you have another issue where they said, like, nearly half of the adult male population of Richmond had been members of the KKK. So, like, here he is. He's 16 years old. He's preaching about, you know, how Christianity says we should all be included. And he's preaching it to people who have been excluded for a very long time. Mm Mm-hmm. And, like, sure, he was a little white kid, but he was so passionate about, like, equal rights that black citizens just kind of stopped and listened to him. Hmm. It was definitely a turning point in his life. And he definitely realized he'd found his platform and his audience. He graduated that year when he was 17 from Richmond High School, so it was a year early, with honors. He took a job at the local Reed Hospital, and that's where he met his future wife, Marceline Baldwin, and they got married a year later when they were both 18. And he enrolled at Indiana University. He became a student pastor at the Somerset Methodist Church in Indianapolis, where he immediately pissed people off by trying to force the church to integrate. It didn't go so well. Um, you can't force these things. When he like brought black families to come into the church, like white families walked out, which is so interesting, you know, um, because what he learned is that like it's one thing for the congregation to sit there passively mm-hmm. and agree with these fiery sermons about a better America and, and God says that everyone is equal, but it's a whole other thing to actually sit next to black people on the same pew, isn't <laughs> it? Yeah, actions speak louder. That's what they say. So in 1951, he was 20 years old. He started going to meetings at the Communist Party USA in oh, Indianapolis. Okay. And he got to see the Red Scare firsthand when his mother was interrogated by FBI agents. He and his mother had gone to go see Paul Robeson sing in Chicago. And the FBI actually showed up at his mom's factory job and made a big scene in front of all the employees there. Then they did the same thing to him and he got fired from his job. Are you kidding me? Wow. 
It's very much what we were doing in this like era. Yeah, just going to people's job though and making a big scene. Like this is my livelihood. Like you can come to my house and ask me these questions, but they, that was on purpose. Um, at the time, he considered himself to be a communist, and he was definitely testing the waters of this. Just decide whether he could discuss it, discuss it at school. He was getting himself in trouble. Um, he was also very openly unhappy about the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. I don't know if you know much about them, but they were a couple that was accused and convicted of spying on the U.S. government for Russia. And a lot of people don't believe that it was true. Uh, many people, just like Jim, thought that they were just victims of the paranoia around the Red Scare. And people were, you know, scared of the Ruskies. Mm-hmm. And both of them got executed at Sing Sing Prison. Oh, wow. Um. So one of the ways that Jim realized that he could teach Marxism was through his work with the church. So in 1954, with the help of a Methodist district superintendent, he was able to open his own church. He had witnessed some faith healing services at a Baptist church, and that really piqued his interest. He very quickly realized that faith healing ministries made a lot of money. And that their followers were very devout. Now, when you say the faith healing, um, you're talking about the guys that like walk around. They, they come around in like their tents and stuff, the mega tents. Well, that's how it used to be, but now they yeah. have the mega churches, and the people walk up and they touch the person's head, and the and person they, falls back, or yes. like smack the crap out of them, and you're like you're healed. Yes, I'm absolutely talking about that. That is something that Jim Jones did. Lovely. <laughs> So what he did was he picked a community that had been forced to desegregate and he went door to door telling the community that his church was going to be about community unity and faith healing. And it started out pretty small, but within two years he was ready to move to a bigger building, but he needed to like raise money for it. He put out this massive religious convention and he invited like other faith healers and After that event, he created the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. I never knew the whole name of this stupid church. Because it's always like every article just calls it the People's Temple. But the full name is the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. Oh, my God. And then later on, he shortened it it to the People's Temple. Because, of course. Yeah, I'm not going to say that every time I I want to go to church. I mean, not that they would go, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. You going? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 that place. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so um, he actually was a real minister. He got ordained twice. Uh, first by the Independent Assemblies of God in 1957, and then again in 1964 by the Disciples of Christ. Um, he studied how to manipulate people. And, and he did it by reading two people in particular. Um, one person is Father Divine, and the other is Hitler. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And actually, when he spoke to Father Divine, he... Well, actually, maybe I should explain who Father Divine is. I was about to say, was that one of the, um, one of the healing guys or the, the pastor from his church or home? So Father Divine, he, he's, well, that's the name he was known as, but as Reverend M.J. Divine. He was a African-American, like, spiritual leader. Mm-hmm. And um, his full self-given name was Reverend Major Jealous Divine. He was also referred to as the messenger. And, yes, you're absolutely right. He was one of the big uh, faith-based healers. Um, 
during his era, but he was like a little, he died in like 1965. So before uh, Jim Jones went completely off the rails, they were friendly. Um, and he had this like doctrine. Um, oh, wait, I remember this part. That like Christ existed in every joint of a follower's body and that he was God's light incarnated to show people how to establish heaven on earth. But when Jim Jones got to speak with Father Divine, Father Divine told him, you need to find an enemy for your congregation. And they need to make sure they know who the enemy is. And it's a way to unify the church and it'll make them look up to you. Um, Jim decided he was going to be progressive. And so the enemy were the people who were keeping black people and women and poor people oppressed. I mean, the government? That was something poor folks in Indiana could get behind. Well, kind of. Um, it's not surprising that he's very much anti-U.S. government. Uh, he did say he was a communist. Yep. So in 1960, he gets appointed as the director of the local human rights commission by the Indianapolis mayor, Charles Boswell, because he is pushing a really like progressive, you know, we're all one, we're all together. We can love Jesus and also not be racist. Right, right. Yeah. Um, Boswell really liked his message, but he was just like, listen, you are putting a target on your back, Jim. He's like, just keep a low profile, do the work. And Jim was like, absolutely not. So he went to a meeting with the NAACP and the Urban League. Hmm. And for folks, I forgot we do have international listeners. That's the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It is an old name from when we referred to ourselves as colored people. And the Urban League also worked towards helping uh, people of color. But he got on stage and he told the crowd that they needed to be more militant. And he ended his speech by saying, let my people go. Oh, my God. This was filmed. Oh, oh my God. I did. <laughs> He pushed for racial integration of churches, restaurants, a local telephone company, amusement parks, theater, local hospital, even the local police. Um, When hate crimes were committed in black neighborhoods, he would show up. He would comfort the family, encourage them to stay there and stand their ground. Um, He would set up sting operations to prove that restaurants weren't serving black customers, even though they were supposed to. Mm -hmm. In 1961, he ended up like collapsing and he was accidentally put in a black ward in the local hospital and he told the staff there he's like no it's okay you don't have to move me um and then while he was there and this is how you know he's just such a good salesman so while he's in the hospital himself for having like passed out he starts making the beds of the other black patients and emptying their bedpans oh my god god doing too much (laughs) well as I'm sure you probably guessed, he probably wasn't treated too well for this from the other white-owned businesses, and mm. they were very critical of him. Um, it was pretty common for them to show up at church, and Nazi symbols would get tagged on the building. Um, once he found a stick of dynamite inside of the coal pile in the church, and he would get like threatening calls. The people threw like dead animals at his house. Weird stuff. Oh wow! Um, and it's so interesting because like, <clears throat> I didn't think about this, but. World War Three, like in the 1960s, we were definitely worried about say, the process of World War Three. Did you say World War Three? Yeah. In the 1960s, we were worried about there being a World War Three. Okay. That's what the Cold War kind of was. We were afraid that, you know, there was going to be a bomb every week. Like 
my dad talks about like, you know, there were things about like there were, you know, what do you call those? Um, the drills where the kids are supposed to hide under their chairs. Right, and right, right. Bomb. Either and like, yeah, bomb drills. Uh, they were like the news would <clears throat> tell people how to deal with radiation poisoning. A lot of churches across the country were pretty much telling their parishioners, "Repent. The end of the world is now." Um, Jim Jones was like, eh, "You know, I don't." I, I think we can make it through the end of the world. <laughs> and so what he said was that we need to move our church to a safer place than Indianapolis. And so he said that they need to leave the Midwest because he had had a vision of a mushroom cloud over Chicago that spread to Indiana. And so this is the, my best thing about this is that there's an article in Esquire magazine in 1962 called nine places in the world to hide from a nuclear attack. Chicago, one of them. No. Indiana. No. It's nine places in the world to hide. Yeah, from one. Don't want to be in the big city. <clears throat> so one of the places on the list was Belo Horizonte, Brazil. And so what he did was he went down there with his family, and he was trying to settle down there first, and then he was going to settle. He was going to send for the church. He bought a three bedroom house. He tried to study the local economy, local religions. He couldn't speak Portuguese, and he had a hard time down there making money. And for two years, his church actually suffered a lot. Um, and finally, some of his like hardcore members who were still there were like, listen, Jim, only 100 people show up every week now. And so he abandoned the concept of them going down to Brazil and he came back. So they went from 2,000 a week to under 100. Oof. He returned with his family to work on the church and the numbers started increasing again. Speaking about his family, this is probably my, like, cringiest thing that I feel like that he did, but he called it his rainbow family. And he started adopting different children from different races. His rainbow family. His rainbow family. That's so gross. It is, isn't it? <laughs> it's fucking gross. Yeah, in 1954, he adopted a girl named Agnes, who was part indigenous, then he adopted three Korean-American children. Um, they were Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne. Actually, was it? No, yeah. Did I write Stephanie? Yes. Okay, no, Stephanie. He wanted the church to adopt more Korean children because he didn't agree with the U.S. opposing North Korea. He said that the the fight between North Korea and South Korea was like a liberation move, like a liberation movement. Sir. Remember, communism. Uh, okay. He supports the communists. I... But sir, <laughs> no. Jones and his wife only have one biological child named Stephen Gandhi. Oh, that's an interesting name. Uh-huh. 1961, they became the first white couple to a black, adopt a black child in Indiana. And that child was named Jim Jones Jr. <sighs> Come on. He didn't even give his own biological child his name. You should name he the... gave his bio he gave the the black kid the Jim Jones Jr. Oh my god! Um, they also jo adopted a kid named Tim Glenn Tupper, who was white and a child of one of the members of the temple. And I'll get into that later. Okay. 
So Jim brought everybody back together back in December of 1963, but he was still very much obsessed with leaving Indiana. He told his congregation that he had seen in a vision that the world was going to be involved in a nuclear war on July 15, 1967, and that afterward there would be a socialist utopia on Earth, but that the temple needed to move to Northern Carolina to hide. The city that they wanted to move to was also in that Esquire article. Oh, to, to hide in? So he, he he just went down the list. Like. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, he, he said that they need to move to Redwood Valley, California. And so they made that move two years later, summer of 1965. Um, and this time it was a little different because the Jim Jones fans weren't too bothered. It was a two-day drive mm. from Indianapolis to, to Northern California. Um, as soon as the kids got out of school, they packed up their cars and yeah. This went, this went over way better than, you know, the idea that, like, Jim is in a third world country right now trying to have us come down here. Yeah, like, we want to stay in the U.S. We don't want to get a pa- oh, did it? I don't think they had to get passwords for stuff, but continue. Well, I mean, it was still very much a test, though, yeah, for I- his congregation. He wanted to see how far they would go, how much they trusted him. Oh, we're not going that far. Sorry. That's a that's a, like we like we uh, say when people try to get us to go like a state over. That's a trip. <laughs> Ooh, that's a trip. No, no, no. We talked about this. That black people say it's a trip when something's 45 minutes away. That's a- we say it's a trip when it's even just even the slightest bit inconvenient. Ooh, wait, that's a drive. I don't want to do that. Ah, oh, that's, a, that's a trip. Goodness gracious. <laughs> That's what that, like an hour back and forth. I don't think, ooh, uh, ooh. That, listen, when I hear that people commute like an hour and a half every day for work, I'm just, my soul cringes. I know you got to because, you know, we all need money, but like my mm. soul hurts. 15 minutes is still a pain for me. Five minutes is a pain for me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. So I'm like, listen, uh, that's a t- two days? Mm-mm. Oh, thank you. That's a trip. <laughs> So the thing was like only the people who believed that he could see the future, he was a real prophet, were going to uproot their whole lives to go be with him. And so 150 people followed him to California and they became the core members of his congregation. And these like 150, these like core members followed him to the end of this story. Hmm. Um, Jim was not passive though about his parishioners that stayed back though he used every manipulation tool that he had to get them to join he told some people he dreamed about them dying in indianapolis he called people personally he painted stories of quaint idyllic settlements of of you know only people who thought like the congregation thought he promised members employment and access to resources they didn't have in indiana which he did do. He had done some research and a local mental health hospital was closing. And so that part of that original 150 like members mm-hmm. set up a series of government subsidized care homes for patients who had been kicked out of the, of the, the mental health facility. So that was easy money. And he was like, listen, you worried about having a job in California? I got a job for you. Just got to watch these people a couple hours a day. Oh my God. I'm just... That was one that really pushed people over the fence. They were like, well, I mean, we'll have money and we can just stay for a couple months. We can yeah. just stay for the summer. Yeah. The kids will be back in school in the fall. We can come <laughs> back in the fall, make a little money while we're gone. It's just how persuasive they are. It's just, oh, goodness. These freaking- it is. It is. So when they arrived in uh, Mendocino County, which is where uh, 
The caravan kind of did shock local people. Local newspapers wrote about how like this whole church moved across the country and welcomed them. The city, it was called Ukiah. Um, they weren't exactly all the way happy to have them there. It was a town of about 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. and didn't have a whole lot of black people there. And several of the temple members got denied like the ability to rent in certain apartments and stuff. One time, the the group of like 150 went out swimming. Local people yelled racial slurs at them. Interestingly enough, this one thing that Jim Jones did do was he did fill his congregation with confidence because they had no intention of leaving. But what what those kind of that behavior did was make them more insular and made them more weary of strangers, which only aided in Jim's ultimate plan. Right. Um, they had moved across the country for their dream of racial harmony. Sure, the racists were here yet again. And they were proving themselves to be the enemy that he said they were. But Jim and his family were like kind of a a, a respite from the constant harassment. He would have the Sunday services at different people's houses or at other borrowed churches. Um, He would do it in the front yard of the congregation's house. Hmm. Um, It was a struggle, but like people were happy. Um, And then as a community, they decided that they were going to build a pool in one of the temple members' front yards. Um, and that was a big bonding experience for the community. They did hire a construction company to handle like the base having okay. like the digging <laughs> and the tile. But then they stepped up to do the other like other jobs. I guess they built like sort of a like a little gazebo around it and stuff like that. That stuff they did themselves. It was their their little sanctuary in a hostile world. And um, it, it turned them into a family, I think. Hmm. Um, the group started to get bigger. There was the editor of the local newspaper, the Ukiah Journal. His name was George Hunter, and he became a friend of the group. And then the county supervisor, Albert Barrow, and then the sheriff, Reno Bartolome, also became friends with him. The sheriff was pretty hype because he spent a lot of his time in the summer chasing like the little hoodlum kids around. Mm. And so Jim Jones was like, listen, you can come to my pool, but you better get your act right. Oh, to the kids? Yep. Oh, okay. And so they agreed to do what he said if they got to you know come you'd be the pool so the sheriff was like this is great now i can actually have the people who work for me do their jobs Mm -hmm, instead mm -hmm. of chasing these kids around and uh since the sheriff was happy that you know added to them getting support from people you know attacking them and then jim further you know creating this bond gave the the local police station money for equipment that the police needed that they weren't getting from california wow yeah. Wait, wow. Cause, oh, goodness. They were getting a lot of money, huh? Weren't they? They were getting a lot of money. Yeah. Remember huh. that Faith Healer thing? People love that. Yeah. That ties an author in. <laughs> so about this time, his message started to evolve. The more he studied the Bible, the more he realized that it was super inconsistent. And there were a lot of contradictions. He was also kind of bothered by the fact that, like, he was like, why does God allow for slavery, rape? mass murder, and just a whole lot of violence. He actually started to doubt that the Bible was real. And he began to doubt that God was real. He created this little pamphlet, which was called The Letter Killeth, But the Spirit Giveth Life. And that's a direct quote from 2 Corinthians 3.6. And he interpreted that Bible verse as saying that the Bible kills, but love like makes us alive. And that People aren't being saved by like just reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so that little pamphlet became the thing that he gave to everyone when they showed up. Um, The FBI like has these files and 
they make a note of saying that that would be probably his official break with Christianity. He didn't dismiss the Bible completely, but he only ever used it to say how great he was. Like in that pamphlet, there's a direct quote that says, there is a prophet in our day who unquestioningly proves that he is sent from God. He is talking about himself. You, you know, you know, you're not. Yes, he was. <laughs> and listen, some members were not okay with this, but others kind of followed along. This is one of the biggest and most divisive things from all the survivors of the temple that I read about. I read a lot of articles from people who were there or people who, who were in the church and then defected. Um, yeah, that's what he called it. If you left his church, you were a defector. Not you just chose another church. He saw it as a betrayal. Defecting. Yes. Oh my God. Like when you defect from the military. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like I, I looked at people's articles and like, perfect example, there's a, a woman who ultimately ended up surviving the massacre. Mm-hmm. And till the end, she still believed that he cured her of cancer. Like they, there's some people, like I read articles that were like, he could do normal things that men couldn't. And um, there were other survivors of his church who were like, he was the 60s version of what Scientology is now. That sounds about right. They were like, he was a shyster who used our weaknesses against us. That sounds. So it's like such a mix. So like even amongst the congregation then, and I mean, most of the survivors are no longer alive. There are a couple, Mm -hmm. but then and now there's still this, this debate over whether he was really a prophet. Huh. Interesting. But regardless, Mendocino County was a success and it got so big that he decided to take his show on the road. He bought 13 greyhounds and he started traveling across the country performing miracles. The temple had now, they had a public relations crew and they were posted in newspapers across the country. And so he was packing auditoriums in like every major city, Chicago, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Detroit, Cleveland, Brooklyn, New York City. He amazed people with his miracles, but he was also clairvoyant. And of course, we know now that the clairvoyance that we see at these is just people being able to read people well. Right. It's the same thing that happens when you go to a magic show. And they, they're just some people who know how to pick up on body language and things of that nature. Look, magic shows are awesome. They are, absolutely. <laughs> um, but- something that I've really liked late- lately was that Penn and Teller have a show where the other magicians come on mm-hmm. and try and wow them. Mm. Oh, okay. And, and sometimes they discuss the tricks. And um, so like even magicians who know that things aren't necessarily real. I say that in quotation marks because it's this is all about just having a good time. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's entertaining. It's you entertainment. Know, suspension of disbelief. But like, uh, I mean, there's definitely plenty of them that are very interesting. Yeah. Or like, I just... It's the, the ability to like suggest things. There was a magician I saw in um, college and I only remember, I remember the, the thing that he did, but I also remember him because he was in one of the Jackass movies because he's a card thrower mm-hmm. and he's the one who was throwing the cards at Steve-O's yeah. ass. Um, so I if you want to know that. the guy I'm talking about, just go to the movie. You'll find him. Yeah, but <laughs> he did this thing where he had like everybody write down numbers and everybody got to write down their own number and then they put it in an envelope and they sealed it. And then he had another envelope that was already sealed that had a phone number in it mm. and that he had written before we all arrived. And they the numbers lined up, which just means that that guy's ability to suggest stuff to people 
it was so good that, is pretty. <laughs> that he was able to get us to to write down the number that he had already written down the night before that's incredible see so that's yes. what we're talking about with this with jim jones with his clairvoyance was him being impeccable at knowing how to suggest things to people yeah okay but with magicians they're for entertainment with jim no, jones this is like ultimately hurting people yes exactly with jim jones and like people like uh what's faith their, healers those people in freaking fake psychics on tv they are not helping anybody so he would do all that right and mm-hmm. it was a good show and everybody loved it because it's it's fun to watch these things too uh, yeah of course so then at the end he would invite them to california you know you come see my fields of greens and potatoes and strawberries Ooh, that's a- take me up on my offer come home to california Come out there into the beautiful fields of Eden. See what we're doing out there for freedom. And I'll tell you, you won't want to come back. Oh, I mean, Philly to California. I don't know, man. That's a trip. That's a, that that's, is a trip. That's because <laughs> we're you and me. We're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> he promised to care for them like he was their family. All they had to do was get on the bus. And a lot of people did. Um, a lot of those people who he picked up in those, they were winos, they were homeless people, prostitutes, junkies, poor single moms who needed people to look out for them. And Jim was like, these people have all been left out here to die because of the fascism of the United States. And he wasn't wrong, but what he did with these people was wrong. Yeah. He's not wrong that we have like the, the, the abject poverty in the United States just shouldn't exist. But it does. So they came back to Redwood Valley and the members who had stayed home put a roof over these people's heads. Like with the drug addicts, like they would sit with those people 24 seven until like the tremors and the vomiting stopped. Single moms and kids were given a place for both mom and the kids to thrive. They got good jobs, good education. Any elderly who felt like they'd been cast aside to just die alone, which is a real common thing. Um, they found a community of other elderly people who they could become close to and they had access to health care. They weren't getting at home from people within the community. But by 1970, uh, it was it was too big for Redwood Valley. And Jim started holding his church services at like high schools and middle schools on Ooh. the weekend. Yeah. Um, but I mean, still not too bad for a guy who started out as a sidewalk scratcher. Yeah. But high schools and middle schools. Well, it wasn't while the kids were there. It was like right, on the weekend. Right, right, Okay. But that's, he needed the <clears throat> space because they couldn't do it at people's houses anymore. Okay, okay. I got you. I got you. Now, I only spoke kind of briefly when I, I said at one point him, his paranoia. But I kind of want to expand on that now. Um, I was very surprised to learn that he had an almost pathological fear of abandonment. And even when his church was in Indiana, he did things that most church pastors like church pastors just don't do. Like if someone left the church, he would send them like very personal and intense letters. He couldn't bear to lose like even one member. And I, I ended up looking at some of these letters because they were also in the, the FBI files. Freedom of Information Act is fun. <laughs> um, and they were, it was like a mixture of threats, but also this is because I love you. So it's very jarring. Ugh. That's gross. <laughs> he would also tr- always try and find ways to make the members feel like they owed him. One time he had them all like write these like weird things saying that like, you know, we'll do anything for the church. Like we'll kill people for the church. And um, one of the members was like, I, I can't do that. I might lose my job for saying I would kill people. So he like changed it and wrote that he would like waste anybody. Um, the same thing. To get around it. Um, 
he started having these like members only meetings and he would have them like sit and talk about like hypothetical situations. What would you do if someone hurt father as he liked to be called? Oh my God. No, fuck you. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Yep. He encouraged them to be very explicit on how they would hurt someone who dared harm him. Um, He was definitely pushing the congregation to a place where they said that they would kill someone. And like they, some of these people meant it. Now, I mentioned that he was, like, saving people who had drug problems. Right. It was 100% against the rules of the People's Temple for folks to do any sort of drugs. They couldn't drink alcohol. They couldn't do anything. Uh, that's a no for me, dog. It is a no uh, for me, dog. Uh, but no alcohol. No, thank you, sir. Jones had a drug problem of his own. Oh, so you hypocrite. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the worst thing, though, was that he was drugging his congregation. When they ended up doing the the final search down in Guyana, they found a huge stockpile. Quaaludes, Demerol, Valium, Thorazine. And if you remember when we discussed Herman Mullen in episode 13, he was put on Thorazine. Mm -hmm. So was Andrea Yates. It is a very powerful antipsychotic medication. A lot of people say it. Who take it say it makes you very drowsy and it slows you down. Just like Quaaludes, just like Demerol, just like Valium. Um... He used these drugs for people who spoke out against the church. So to keep them drowsy and quiet, huh? Uh-huh. Um, he would like he would lace their food. Um, so it might be like, oh, we're we're having like an event at Stacy's house, and we know that like Tom has been talking that talk. Mm-hmm. And so they would very quietly lace Tom's sandwich and make sure that when he came up to get the food, they gave it to him. Sir you want us to trust you? You're drugging everybody? Only only the people who were a part of this with him, like the higher ups, even knew about it. Oh, no. Okay. And Joan's drug problem was getting pretty bad. Like there were reports, like during sermons, he would be like, oh, I have to stop and take my medication. Mm. My pills. Mm-hmm. And he would tell the congregation he didn't want to take the drugs, but he had to. He also started promoting women's liberation in a real not-so-good way. So he told the congregation that marriage was for the bourgeoisie, and they didn't need it. And then he started having a lot of affairs with men and women. Um, my Direct quote from him, My love will not reach you if you put a piece of flesh between you and me. Excuse me? What? Um. What he would also do is like, so like a family would come across the country or come from another place to the to Redwood, right? Mm-hmm. He would separate the family. He would put the kids with another group of people. He would put the husband somewhere else. He would put the wife somewhere else. Um, and there were reasons for that. Um, he was dismantling the families. Um, that one white son mm-hmm. who he had from a woman in his congregation he so- was from one of those affairs. Oh my God. Um, most of the women who he was having these affairs with, he encouraged to get abortions. Um, he actually bragged to some of his friends that he was sleeping with the people in his congregation, not for any reason, but because he knew if he was sleeping with them, they would stay connected to the cause. He didn't particularly care for them. I hate you. Okay. Um, so I said that he put the kids in separate places, right? Right. So wait, okay. When you separate them, separate homes, mm-hmm. so to other people in the community. So he, so he, so he forced people to adopt these children, or forced well, these children. So it might be like people. a house <clears throat> where 
um, this lady teaches all the kids. So the kids are staying with her. <sighs> um, and then, well, this woman, she's going to work with these women in the fields. So she's going to go live with all the people who work in the fields. And he's going to work with the people who cut all the wood. But it also had another purpose because without the parents there, that definitely broke like the parental bonds between them and the child. And the children are much easier to indoctrinate without mom and dad around. That's upsetting and making me. It is. Uh, uh, And the next part's going to be even more upsetting for you. And I'm sorry. Uh, The next step in dominating the congregation is just like every other cult. He convinced them that he needed to physically punish members of the church for crimes against the church. And just like in pretty much every other cult, the children were the main victims of these abuses. Um, As those families were broken up and sent to different areas, um, the discipline of these new kids fell onto those church members who barely knew them, which meant they had no reason to really like care about it. If by chance you happen to be around when your kid did something that they perceived as wrong, it was demanded that you publicly whip your child to prove your devotion to Jim Jones. And the crimes against the kids weren't just the beatings. Like, he did this other thing that's super awful. He would take the child into, like, a dark room, and then this creepy voice would, like, be over the loudspeaker, and it would say, like, I am the blue-eyed monster, and I'm going to get you. And then he would use the paddles from the electroshock machines on the child. So that's what the blue-eyed monster was. It was the, the two pieces. Oh, my God. He like um, there was a, another like a lady who survived um, and she had a journal um, that they found down in Guyana and she wrote like different things that people got in trouble for. Mm-hmm. So one of the ones they made like an older teenager box a younger child who stole something. They uh, moved from a whip to something called the Board of Education. Um, some another kid got. His, his crime was 120 hits with the Board of Education for calling someone a crippled bitch. And they ended up, like, stopping at 70 because he was fucked up. Um, once a three-year-old bit another child and they made him clean the floor with a toothbrush all night. And then he bit another one the next day. So then they made someone bite him. What the fuck? After all the disciplines, you were made to, like say thank you father over a microphone and then to prove that like the abuse was justified the following week at church he would report like oh you know this person's doing so well now don't talk about me no no they haven't done anything wrong don't don't and that just kind of justified that that was like oh look it works you know we beat tommy last week and now he hasn't done anything wrong don't talk about me like that in front of everybody. Don't <laughs> put my business out there like that. He would do it at church. Oh my god! They'd already seen you get like your ass beat. Yeah, but come on. Yeah, we already talked. We already everybody already saw you. Don't talk about it no more. <laughs> this is pretty jacked up too. Like even with like the abuse, <clears throat> like hitting the teenagers, because a lot of the teenagers who were attracted to his church were kids who were pretty. They were already fucked up. Right. Yeah. You know, and they were attracted to this because it, it seemed like a place where they would be accepted. So at some point, Jim Jones decided no one's allowed to leave. You were called a traitor. You were called a defector if you left. Well, in San Francisco, he began the process of creating Jonestown. This was going to be a socialist paradise, a sanctuary from all the media scrutiny he was getting in San Francisco. It was going to be a model communist community. It was also 4,000 miles away. In Guyana, which is a country to the east of Venezuela. 
you probably haven't heard of it before because it's pretty small. And his thought process there was like, once people were there, I can control them 100%. They can't leave. And you can't really question me. Mm-hmm. So in July of 74, 16 of his church members. Okay, this is so funny. It's not funny. So they got a guy who had never like sailed a boat before to sail from Miami down to Guyana. It took them 10 days. And I don't think that trip is supposed to take 10 days. I think it just took 10 days because they sucked at it. Oh, my God. Well, he didn't know what he was doing. Exactly. So they arrived in Georgetown. They registered. They made the perilous journey through the jungle to Jonestown. And between 40, like 74 and 77, it was just that group. Um, in fact, uh, when the government learned about this, they actually sent some people down there and they were like, uh, what are you guys doing? And interviewed them. And they, they came back to the States and were just like, they seem like a, you know, a bunch of good people. But (laughs) your face. Um, I'm sorry. Over the next few years, they started moving people down slowly. Um, in 1977, everything was ready. And that's when Jim Jones and the rest of the congregation moved down to Jonestown and Guyana. Jonestown didn't go the way that Jim wanted it to, though. Down there, he was no longer the king. See, the community he had let these other people spend three years building for him, they had set up their own small society. Mm-hmm. They didn't need him to recruit people anymore. They already had everybody. He didn't have the power of the politicians in his pockets like he had in San Francisco. The only power he really had was that the women of Jonestown adored him and they were willing to do anything to make him happy. And this church was primarily black and brown people and they were living on an island full of black and brown people. Mm -hmm. So these couple white women that he had who were like in love with him were considered like exotic and desirable. So he selected a group of them and he called them his PR girls and he would send them to visit influential men in the area, in their offices and homes as, as a way to try and get, you know, local politicians on his side. Mm -hmm. Back in Jonestown though, Jim's still up to his old tricks. Uh, Some things were worse though. So like if someone said that they wanted to leave or they were thinking about leaving, he would like have them hidden and isolated Whenever anybody came to visit town. So it doesn't matter when you said you were thinking about going back home. Like if say, oh, people are visiting the village. They would like put all of them in a building and like lock them in. Right. That way you couldn't ask people how to escape. Did now, Or to go with them. Did this place have guards? Yes. Oh, okay. Never mind. I was about to say. Armed it, guards. Oh. He called them the Red Brigade. I would try to escape. I wouldn't even tell anybody. I'm thinking about leaving. I'm just going to pack up and just go some one day and hopefully not get shot. Well, even though he had gone down there, like people were still very much talking about this because there were people who left when they were still in San Francisco. Mm. And those people had lots of stories that they were giving in newspapers and stuff. So he's down there and now he's dealing with like legal cases. There was another situation that I didn't even jump into where he just decided he was going to take this other man's child. And so there was like a whole legal case over who was the parent of this kid. It wasn't his. I don't know why he wanted it. It was so weird. I didn't have time to add that to this though. It's fine. That just would make me even matter actually. (laughs) Um, But, um, one morning, there was a man, and said, this is 77, so they hadn't even been there that long. Mm-hmm. His name was Leon Broussard, 
And like in the morning, he just like snuck out of Jonestown. He worked, he walked over to Port Katuma. He told the police Jonestown is a slave colony. He told them he had been forced to haul labor all day under threat of being clubbed by a guard. He told Jim um, that he had wanted to go back to the States previously and several other members of the church just straight up beat his ass until he like crawled to Jim in like the public square and like begged at his feet for forgiveness. That same day that Broussard escaped, there was a U.S. consul named Richard McCoy who had flown to Guyana to visit Jonestown for the first time. He interviewed Broussard and was like, okay, I'm definitely going to go visit. The situation here was that um, there were families in the States who were seeing all these news articles and TV things. And they were like, my sister went down there. Is she okay? And so um, McCoy went, he walked right in. He met Joe. He met Jim Jones. Jim was like, listen, Broussard is a drug addict and a liar, but I'll pay for his ticket back to the States if he really wants to go. Um, Jim even agreed to let anyone who wanted to leave go home as well that day. Um, this wasn't the first time the U.S. Embassy had sent people down there. They had been sending people since they first moved in in 1974. Um, and every time people came back, they were like, these people seem happy, healthy. Um, McCoy was specifically down there to talk to two members of the group. They were Carolyn Lumen and John Victor Stowen. Because the families, like I said, they were worried. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was coming down there because he was like, listen, we need to set up a system. He's like, I know that your little commune doesn't have TV or phones or stuff like that. Um, like all you have is like a ham radio. But like we have to set up a system to be able to get like a welfare check because people just need to know that their family members aren't dead. Right. <laughs> and so he was like, I need you to bring these people out to me. He's like, I have to see their passport to know that they're real. This mm-hmm. is the right person I'm talking to. And then he's like, I need to go talk to them someplace that we can't be overheard, but it's still public. Mm-hmm. Um, so he spoke to Carolyn first. And the situation was that Carolyn had gone into Georgetown for supplies and she had called her parents and told them that she was rethinking being there. By the time McCoy came down, though, she had mysteriously changed her mind. Hmm. She was beaten into changing her mind. Probably. Yeah, she was scared. Yeah. Um. Stone's parents were like, is he okay? Like, we haven't heard from him in a while. Yeah. Stone was pretty cool. He was like, I'm good. That that was just, the family was just worried. Okay. Um, he returned to the city of Georgetown and Guyana. He was pretty satisfied. No one's being beat there. At least not that he could tell. But now that a U.S. official had officially come down, local officials started dropping by unannounced. A police investigator took a picture of one of the punishment pits as evidence that they were no good. And they were like, no, no, no. People didn't dig that. We have a backhoe. That is not. People absolutely did dig that because that was one of the punishments. <laughs> we have a backhoe. Um, other officials were like, listen, you should allow Guyanese people to work at Jonestown's too. Um, and then they were like, well, why don't you just put all your children in the local public school system? And so Jim was like, absolutely not. <laughs> he didn't want any outsider influence on his congregation. He's like, listen, there's no more room here for anybody else. There's no room for Guyanese people. And he said, if I make the children like go like 45 minutes to, to Georgetown, it'll be traumatizing for them. He said, Jim even wrote to the prime minister of Guyana complaining about the local politicians interfering in his life. Well, so you're doing shady shit down here. We don't like. <laughs> well, remember, I said they had armed guards, right? Yeah. 
So the U.S. had their sights set on taking Jim down because one of the defectors had told them they have guns down there. And so any crates that were sending supplies down to Guyana were all being checked by um, customs. Mm -hmm. Poorly, though, because they still got guns in there. Then Interpol released a report about Jim Jones being paranoid and dangerous. So once he found out that he was being watched by multiple intelligence agencies, he got weirder. He started telling his citizens that America was going through a Holocaust and that black people were in internment camps and they want to come down here and take you all back. He launched, he would have these alarms that would go off at night and he called them white nights and they would, it's, it's actually really jacked up. So all of a sudden in the middle of the night, you just hear like alert, alert, we're under attack. We're under attack. The only people who were allowed not to participate were the children. Then all the adults would come out to like the main area. And then he had them practice what might happen if they got overwhelmed by an enemy, which was practicing the mass suicide. So the reason why we call it drinking the Kool-Aid is because those practices were filmed. And in one of those practices, he was seen like dumping a large container of Kool-Aid into like a vat. Mm-hmm. ultimately the day that it happened, he chose a different brand, but that's where it came from. We didn't see that. Um, and he would make people drink stuff and they like telling them that they were going to die. Like during these like trial and error sessions. And he's like, listen, you need to drink this. Like this was just supposed to be like the drill. And so like that. And they were random, right? Yes. So you would, you would all night long. You wouldn't know if you were actually dying or not that night. Exactly. It's super traumatic because it's all like to to those people. It's all freaking real at that point. And, the, until and then, he like, says, as people lined up, he would hand like uh, pitchforks, machetes. He would hand people weapons. You have to be ready to fight when this alarm goes off. And then it was like, okay, so maybe we get overwhelmed. You know, what are we going to do when we get overwhelmed? We have to take our, we have, we can't, we can't let them take us back. You know, they're going to, well, I'll, I'll, I'll read you some of the quotes from the actual 45 minute clip when it actually went down. It's pretty rough. Um, also, there's this one great bit where he's like, listen, it, I'm more worried about the messages going out than I am about the messages coming in. Because he was like worried that like people were sending like coded messages to their families back home. Like at one point he was convinced that they were sending like coded messages in like dried flowers. Super weird. Hmm. Um, but he was 100% lying because they were also withholding hundreds upon hundreds of letters and telling the cult that the U.S. is keeping your mail from you. I'm not keeping your mail from you. That's the government. Oh, yeah, let me see the mailroom then. Those letters were all found when the FBI did the the final raid on the facility. Uh-huh. Um, and it was really sad. Like, the letters are really sad. They're just people desperate for, like, any word from the people they love. Like, just, hey, you went down there six months ago. How are you doing? Is it all all right? Is it everything you said it was going to be? Oh, God. <sighs> There were a bunch of different trips from different people, and I'm not going to go into all of those because the one that's the most important happened in November of 1978. Um, that's the one everyone's aware of. That's when Congressman Leo Ryan went down to uh, Guyana himself. <laughs> this entire time they're down in Guyana, the media is still, there's still exposés being written, everything. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to go down there myself and see what's happening. And that way I'll be able to tell if they're just, you know, this is just media being salacious or if this is the truth. Mm. He brought with him 
several family members of Temple members, an NBC camera crew, and different reporters from different um, news articles, like like newspapers. Mm-hmm. They traveled from Georgetown to Jonestown on November 17, 1978. Jim hosted a reception for them at the Central Pavilion on the property. And that night at dinner, one of the Temple members passed a note that was meant to go to Ryan to an NBC reporter and was like, help us, please let us go with you. And everything seemed pretty fine. Um, Ryan was like, "Eh, people are kind of lean. They look like they're not eating enough, but this seems all right. And then right before they left the next day, a member of the Temple tried to stab the congressman, so they all kind of left in a hurry. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> with 15 members of the temple. Okay. Who were leaving as well. Okay, awesome. So they they, could be, they got people out some, yeah. that wanted to leave. Jim was like, yeah, it's okay. They can go. He had no intention of letting them go, though. He sent the Red Brigade to follow them. Oh. And the Red Brigade, like I mentioned, were his armed guards. And they showed up at the airstrip before the people were allowed to leave and opened fire on the entire group. Um, Leo Ryan was killed along with several photographers from the San Francisco Examiner. One of the women who was trying to escape, she was also killed. Um, Jones knows exactly what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And if the Red Brigade is successful, he also knows what he's doing. Right. After, after the fact. Yeah. So he's in full panic mode. He sets off the alarm again. He's like, I, I literally just set the U.S. government on me. Yeah, you sure fucking did. By attacking a U.S. senator. That was your fucking fault. Um, He was definitely worried they would come and take him and Jonestown away. So he set out that final plan that he had been having them prepare for, the mass suicide. There is a 45-minute audio clip that you can listen to of him convincing everyone to drink the purple flavor aid. Um, And the worst part about this is that they forced the children to drink it first. You absolutely can hear the children crying in the audio. Um. It is absolutely gut-wrenching. He tells them that it's because the powder inside of the drink is bitter, not because the death is painful. I'm not sure if he knew that what he was, what he did in making the kids do it first, but it it very much was demoralizing. And some of like, um, this was the moment where a lot of the adults there kind of lost their will to live. Mm -hmm. Also during this time, um, while there was chaos, people started. A couple people started running into the woods, like away, just to hide. Okay. They were like, "We're just gonna run into the jungle. Yeah, we're gonna take our risks with snakes and other animals." <laughs> um, Fuck, you're not pushing yeah, me. People definitely lost their will to live after watching their children die. On the tapes, he tells them that the Soviet Union is not gonna offer them safe passage um, because of the Red Brigade's attack. And that this is their only option. He said it was better than they kill themselves and be killed by the U.S. military who are going to drop down on them in parachutes in any minute. They'll torture our children. They'll torture some of our people here. They'll torture our seniors. Like I said, um, he had been stockpiling cyanide for two years. Oh, wow. So he had been playing this for a very long time. <sighs> that day, over 900 people died, including Jones, his wife, and uh, Lou and Agnes. Uh, it was a mixture of grape flavor aid, a sleep sedative, and cyanide. So he was at least trying to have them fall asleep before. But that's not really how that works. Because the cyanide begins working immediately. And yeah. it takes time for the sedative to go through your system. Um, 
So like they were crying because their body was exploding from the inside. Um, they found Jones uh, with a gunshot wound to his head at the center pavilion. Autopsies determined that it was self-inflicted. Um, the photos from Jonestown are chilling and they're everywhere. Like if you are interested in someone listening, they're all over the place. It's just bodies all over the place. Um, Nobody look it up. <laughs> now, Stefan, Jim Jr. and Tim survived because they were members of the People's Temple basketball team and they had gone to an away game in Georgetown. Oh. And several days before the mass suicide, Jim had called Stefan and been like, the, the, the senator is coming. You need to come back. Mm-hmm. And Stefan was like, no. And you can't make me. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think he was like 18 or 19. That, children, that teenage rebellion. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I'm like, teenage defiance saved him and his brother's lives. Fuck yes. Um, the boys actually, when they found out what happened, they tried to go to the embassy to get help, but they weren't allowed in. And so then they went back to Jonestown and they were some of the first people to see what happened. Stefan somehow got accused of being a part of the murder and spent three months in jail. I wasn't um, even there. Exactly. Um, other members of the basketball teams ended up being stuck there helping to identify all the bodies. Uh, um, Jim Jr. ended up going back to the States where he was under surveillance for several months while he lived with an older sister who was a temple defector. Stefan was released, and he's currently a businessman who lives still in the U.S. He's married. He has three daughters. He's appeared on a couple of documentaries about Jonestown. Um, Jim Jr. actually lost his wife and unborn child at Jonestown. She was still there, and she drank the concoction. Mm -hmm. He returned to San Francisco, eventually remarried, and he has three sons. Um, 85 people survived the Jonestown Massacre. Most of them were not on the property at the time of the event. Like Some of them just ran into the woods. Um, One woman, however, was there, and I talked about her earlier. Her name is Hyacinth Thrash. She was 52 when she joined the People's Temple. And you know her, yeah. Um, Her name is Cynthia Hyacinth Thrash. And um, she said when she heard the alarm, she talked to one of her friends, and... Her friend was just like, something bad's going on. I don't know if I'm going to go outside. So Cynthia decided she was going to hide under her bed. And since it was total chaos, nobody checked. Mm-hmm. And she stayed there. Like, she didn't get out. She ultimately fell asleep there that night <laughs> and woke up the next morning. And she walked outside and was just like, did they come and kill everybody? Like, she went to her friend's room and saw her friend Birdie right. with a sheet over her. Because at this point, the people had come around and covered all the bodies. Yeah. Like, the the government. And... um. That's where the name of her book, The Onlyest One Alive, said. She's like, am I the onlyest one here? Like, I I love the fact that she was just like, I'm not doing this today. He's calling us for all these drills. I'm tired. Who knows? She didn't know if it was a real, like, one or not. Yeah. Her friend was like, I think something happened at the airstrip. They didn't really know anything else about it. Yeah. That's another freaking drill. I'm not even worried about this. I'm just going to, like, hang out under my bed. And when you guys come back, just wake me up. Yeah. So I don't get in trouble from whatever these whatever you're stupid today (laughs) yep oh god but her book details her entire experience meeting jones from 1957 up to the massacre she died at 19 at 93 years old in 1995 Mm -hmm. and up until the day she died she still believed in jim jones and she would tell anybody that he cured her of breast cancer in 1957 Mm -hmm. like i said before 
The survivors still debate about whether he was a healer, whether he was a villain, whether he was a shyster. What we do know is that a man discovered that he could have power through manipulating people down on their luck with promises from community and the help of the Bible. Um, he's definitely not the first man to do it and he won't be the last. No. Um, I don't want, I hate to be a religious hater, but like it always makes me wonder why it has been so easy for people to use Christianity to brainwash other people. But you know, that's probably a conversation for another day. Definitely. Um, and I usually say all of the names of the the books that I read for the podcast. Mm-hmm. What I will say to anybody listening is if you really want to know, at the end of the podcast, I will list the like 10 different references that were used for this <laughs> podcast today. I'll just do them then. That way it doesn't get in the middle of what we're doing now. But yeah, that's what we got. So technically, you know, one of those ones where they're not a murderer, but like totally definitely a murderer. They, they cause a lot of murders. Oh my God. Almost a thousand people. It's a lot of people. Like, I just don't get that, the end part. Like, why? Okay, you move all these people down here just to what? They kill them later on? I don't think it went the way that he wanted. But I I think he expected to move down there and be a king among men. He was like, gonna be, you know, everybody's, they're gonna be, people are gonna look up to me. They're gonna think I'm amazing. Yeah, but. I guess, like you said, he stockpiled cyanide for two years. Right. So he'd been planning that for years now. Yeah. So he um, had. I didn't go too into it, but there was a situation with a legal case um, down in Guyana. And that's kind of when he started doing the White Knights. Okay. During that legal situation. Um, uh, I think he just realized he couldn't win. You could have just stopped and sent everybody home. I mean, you would have broken their, like, they would have and... been upset, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but they would have still been a liar. Remembered as a, a liar and a shyster. Yeah. Oh well. This it... seemed like a better option, probably. I guess. My God, I fucking hate that. I, like, I like learning about cults. I like hearing, like, you know, just You're the... hear about some more in the next couple weeks. Oh my goodness! Yay! <laughs> but we're talking like... about massacres. But like, it's just it's infuriating. As well, just listening to it. And it was like, no. <laughs> well, it's one of those things. I never thought too much of it until um, I, I made a friend last year who um, told me that his family was a part of a cult when they were kids. And it's something that's so. He's gone through therapy and all this stuff, but it, it's it's emotionally devastating to the point where he still gets choked up even talking a little bit about it. I believe it. Um, I, I didn't like, you know, you think about cults and you're like, haha, you know, but like these things like destroy people's lives. And yeah. I'm like, how could you like, especially the stuff that we were reading. I was telling you today about like beating kids. Mm-hmm. That stuff happened to him. Not the paddles with the electroshock, but it, the, the proving your value to the cult leader by abusing your child is something that happened to my friend in public. Um, it wasn't always in public, but he has no positive feelings about school or anything related to education because if he got bad grades, he got beat. If he got good grades, he got beat. It didn't matter what he did as a child. Like they, he just got harmed because that was what the lady told his mother to do. Hmm. So it's really sad. And, um, (sighs) Wow. It's just a lot of wow. Yeah.
When Killers Get Caught is sponsored by the Magic Class Boutique. Now, why does that name sound so familiar? Well, it's because it's a business ran by our very own Brittany. That's right, the Magic Class Boutique is not only a black-owned business, it's a woman-owned as well. This is a jewelry company that makes some pretty awesome earrings, ranging from cute little sushis to spooky mermaid skeletons. There are even adorable self-defense keychains for those just-in-case moments. And introducing the Serial Collection. This set of earrings is based off of Serial Killers and the official merch for the podcast. This collection features everything a serial killer would need to pull off their crimes, from hunting knives at the beginning of their crimes to warden keys for when they eventually get caught. Check out themagicclasp.com today where you can use our promo code CAUGHT to receive 15% off of your online order. That's T-H-E-M-A-G-I-C-C-L-A-S-P dot com and use promo code CAUGHT for 15% off and make sure you tell Brittany that I sent you. What do you bring to us today? Okay. The other world. The other side. Let's brighten the mood, shall we? There you go. Okay. So, question for you. Sure. If you had to choose one, which would you choose? Spooky. Would you rather be a vampire or a werewolf? Vampire. Why? You never age. You never... Change. Also, there's not a um, horrible, painful transformation. It's always been reported that the werewolf transformation hurts as your body like explodes out of its flesh. I don't like that. Hmm. Okay. Yes. Okay. I see that. You know me. I don't like pain. Oh, so uh, why? What do you like? What's yours? Would you rather be a werewolf? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, okay. Definitely werewolf. <laughs> but I don't want to be like a, a Twilight vampire. I want to be like a vampire vampire. Okay, I actually made a little... I went on a tangent <laughs> when I was writing this. Like, you, if you want to be a sparkle vampire, or you want to no. be, be a moody... I want to be a Bram Stoker's vampire. <laughs> or a moody-ass werewolf. <laughs> well, listen, um, in Twilight, they were all moody. Yeah, this Edward is true. Edward was moody, oh, so oh was... Uh, the Native American boy, Jacob, Jacob. That's his name. Yeah, you team Jacob also, or team Edward. you know Edward. that it's on Netflix right now, and I people saw. who've never seen it are now watching it and losing their minds oh on God. Twitter. They're the, like, what was this? Terrible. Like, who knows? <laughs> it was weird. It but was yeah, something. So you want to talk about werewolves today? I'm. Oh, you think I want to talk about werewolves today? Oh. No, no, no. Oh, I was I, like, I went on the fucking tangent when I was writing this. I swear, I, oh, like, because I was like, I, I was so bad talking like Twilight, and I was like, I don't want nobody to talk about me like a Pokemon because I have a like, because I made it like a point to say that people who like Twilight made it like their whole fucking personality. That was the problem, <laughs> honestly. Like. And- Team Jacob, Team Edward. Yes, and I was like, look, don't come at me for liking Pokemon. I mean, I like other things besides Pokemon. Listen, I took my sister to see it, so I don't listen. It was entertaining, but it was weird. <laughs> I was also a grown ass adult when it came out, so it was different yeah. for me. But yeah, um, no, I I would like to be a, a werewolf. I mean, I know the transformation probably fucking sucks, and I do age, but I don't really die age easily. Slower, yeah, exactly. It's harder for you to die. But. Exactly. I mean, I'm already, you're already a vampire, though, fam. 
a werewolf. You hang out at night. Yeah, this is true. I, I give blood to vampires. I'm more like Nosferatu. <laughs> or is there Igor for vampires? Oh my gosh, you love discussing Igor. Anyway, but yeah, no, I don't like vampires. We little like fucking Blade. <laughs> no, no God, thank you. Actually, that would be great. I mean, that would be awesome. I'm not Wesley Snipes though. But anyway, today I will be telling you the tale of the <laughs> Stry- Striga. Striga? Striga. Striga. That sounds familiar to me. I feel it's, like it's been ref it's been referenced in something that I watched recently. It's uh it's it's spelled T uh S T R Z Y G A. Striga. Yeah, something is like that. Is it like Swedish or Swiss or something? It is Polish. Ah, okay. <laughs> I was like, I, this sounds Eastern European. Yes. Uh, and when I looked this word uh, I looked um, the topic up and stuff, and I was like, why does this name sound familiar? And it's a, it's sort of a name of a JoJo character. Oh, Lord. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm bringing JoJo's Bizarre Adventure into the podcast. Every time you can. <laughs> but uh, I'll get more into that after I start explaining what this uh, creature is. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a creature. It's um, actually um, described as a demon. Okay. Um, so it's not a werewolf. Oh, it's not really a true vampire, but it may be where uh, vamp- uh, people have got the idea, the inspiration for vampires from. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, it definitely did pick up steam. We talked about that last week in yeah. the podcast about like Europe being the place where the vampire lore just like, yeah. took off. <laughs> so this makes sense that it came from a Polish country that would come from a Polish country then. Yes, this is a demon with vampire tendencies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right. So I don't, I don't think I know anything about it. I think I've heard it mentioned in like a another like vampire show. Okay, yeah. They like talked about it. So the, the JoJo character, his name is Strazo. Mm-hmm. Is in uh, the the second version of the second uh, whatever second season of JoJo, and he's sort of like a vampire type of person. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, I guess uh, maybe they got that from this. I doubt it. But anyway. Well, that's like every time I like talk about a certain killer on TikTok, people are like, this sounds just like this character in American Horror Story. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yes, because American Horror Story gets their information exactly. from true crime they, lore they really do. and paranormal lore. They really, really do. So this creature is from Slavic mythology, and it is literally described as how I picture Gemini's to be. Yeah, I'm starting fights today. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm not a, I mean, I got Gemini in my chart, but so do I. So do I. So do I. So let me describe. Um, let me give you like a little description of these little things. Um, well, they're not even little things. Um, so these Strega are like born with two sets of teeth. Okay. Two hearts and two souls. Ooh. This is usually. That's that's why I think Gemini. <laughs> like, they're just monsters with two souls and two hearts and two te- two okay. sets of teeth. Well, they're supposed to be twins, but regardless, exactly. That's yeah, exactly. So they're usually female. Um, I'm, I'm like it's just a thing. They're usually female, but they can be male as well. Um, they are usually driven from uh, their home, uh, from their villages when they're at a young age. Okay. Um, for being thought of uh, being evil spirits, okay, and 
they usually just die in like the forest or you know somewhere okay um but when they die only one of the souls dies Ooh. it's the humanity part of their of them nice. that dies and the other soul takes over their body which becomes nice. the demon <laughs> so they come back as this demon like a full demon, like they were half demon. And they before. go back and they murk their village. <laughs> How dare you release me to the wilderness to die? We'll get to that later. <laughs> yes, revenge. So people, people who are known to uh, sleepwalk, or people with who are born with, without who who can't grow armpit hair, or <laughs> what people this? cannot grow armpit hair. I, I would guess. like to be one of those people. I guess that'd be awesome. Or um, children who are born, like babies, who like babies who are born with like full sets of teeth. Oh yeah, yeah, that's really creepy when that happens. Yeah, um, they are they are thought of as being these uh, trays as well. Well, the funny part about that though is, remember we learned about the fact that like you are born with all of those teeth. Look, they just don't come down. So all that <laughs> happened was just a little extra growth. They just moved down they moved- from your face. Mm. That's all that that is. But sorry. Uh, that uh. is horrifying to me though that yes. little toddlers are walking around with those teeth up under their eyes oh my god imagine breastfeeding with a little baby <laughs> he just has all there's teeth some, already there's danger in there in that uh, mouth my nipples already <laughs> I love how you just grabbed your chest like you breastfeed I, I, look I know it hurt me I don't know why <laughs> it hurt me just to think about it I share your pain. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. Your kid is born with a whole set of teeth. Yeah. How do you feed them? How do you feed them in like 1400? There's no formula. Mm-mm. Just gotta Oof. grin and bear it. Definitely. Oh, poor moms. So people who well, are. Again, never mind. They were throwing those babies out in the woods. That's so. true. Yeah. Those. Oh my God. Exposing them to the wilderness. Um, People who were accidentally buried alive during epidemics uh, and managed to escape their, like their, their uh, graves. Happened a lot. Um, you know, just digging through the dirt with their hands, and you know, they just look dehydrated. They're all like, uh, you know, looking half dead anyway. Yeah, they are thought of as Straza as well, um, just because of their hands and how they just look like messed up. Okay, from being buried alive. Um, now remember when I said they're like vampires? Yes. Well, that's because they feed on human blood. Right, that's right. Um, and actually, they feed on human blood in their entrails as well. Okay, I don't like that part. <laughs> we can leave the meat part behind. So, what do these things look like? What? You said they have two sets of teeth. Yeah, that's but cool. that's all you know about them, right? Well, they often look like normal people in the beginning. Okay. Um, Except that they have gray or like bluish skin. Dead people's skin. Got yeah. Um, so the more the person, so I, I guess when they die and then they come back as a straza, um Lack of oxygen. Yeah. Um, the more they live out this life as being fully demonic and stuff, they begin to develop bird-like or owl-like features. So they start to grow wings. Like, have you ever seen like a harpy? I like it. Have you seen a harpy before? Yes. Okay. So think of a harpy, but like a, a little bit more buff harpy. Like something that's like it, it, it arms of wings. They have feathers. Um, they have claws on their hands. 
um, and you know their toes as well too. But um, they got long pointed ears. They're just harpy ish. Not, not pretty anymore. <laughs> they're not. I don't want to be one. I have pictures. Hold on. Let me see if I can find a picture. Uh, pull one up real quick. Um, this is like the main picture I saw of one. So think of that. Oh, that's horrible. Like buff, but with wings. See, I like the, the sexy factor of vampires as well. Though I do love with werewolves how you can like be and the no- you be normal. Yeah. Except for like one night a month. Exactly. So like I would re- definitely rather be a werewolf anyway. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess that's true. And they they have their the two sets of teeth, uh, but they're more like you know monstrous. Um, so they are actually very very what <laughs> they are actually very very great hunters. Okay, that makes sense. And they are very very great hunters for hunting humans. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I feel like we're probably easy to kill, honestly. Yeah. So, like, just imagine, like, you're walking around at night down the street, mm-hmm. or you, like, get lost in the woods, and then <laughs> you see this thing just swoop, swoop down. and just. You know why I wouldn't get lost in the woods, Brian? Because you don't go in the woods. I don't go in the woods. <laughs> we have to go into the woods next week at work, and I'm no one's excited about oh it. Oh, my God. All the teachers are just like, oh, do we have to go in the woods? But my boss was like, we're only going to go on one hike, and I was like, oh. Okay. So yeah, just imagine like this this human sized bird thing swooping down and picking you up. It's that kinda, is frightening. Kinda sounds like I don't know, like the Mothman or like the owl. You're man. right. <laughs> oh an owl bear. Owl oh, those are a thing. Oh That's my god. <clears throat> so these creatures are not nocturnal. Right. And they sleep in their they sleep in their graves in the day. Mm-hmm. Sounds sort of like a vampire, you know how they true, sleep true, in their you know, yeah. their coffins. Oh, you know, I'm not sure if vampires really do that, but you know that's from the old lore. So exactly, um, but at night it's time to hunt. Right. So at this point, um, where they're living in their graves, they are fully, like I said, fully demons, um, and they had to feed off the life force of others. Uh, mm-hmm. mainly humans um they suck the blood and eat in like i said eat the intros of the victims um now these creatures they can they can feed off of animals for a short period of time okay but then they get the hunger they need to they get that like mm-hmm. you know this squirrel is good or that deer you know it tastes pretty good but you know what could that really hits the spot right now Jim, right down the road. That's right. <laughs> getting rid of Jim. Jim down the road. He looks pretty tasty. Let me just go hunt him down. Um, goodness. <laughs> accent is breaking through. Oh, your accent from last night's <laughs> game. You're right. It did come back. <laughs> oh, goodness. So they fly around, you know, disguised as owls at night. So they're just disguised as giant, like, big barn owls just okay. flying around. Um, but when they swoop in to attack their prey, that's when they change and you can see the monster that see they what are. it really is. Yeah. Hey. Like, they never attack the victims when they're in their owl form. Um. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. I like it. Now, you, you brought up the, the revenge earlier, right? Yes. So, Straza, Straza, or... Sometimes known as, or sometimes known to 
attack people who have wronged them in their previous life, like ones who have chased them out of their village. That's right, my kind of people. To make <laughs> my kind of beings. To um yeah, to get revenge on their other soul or for their other soul. And that's right. Here's a little, I guess, Mothman-ish okay. type of thing. They are, they can also be uh, heralds as well. Oh, telling, showing that bad news. Yeah, of somebody's Im- imminent death. So, like, it's something that's going to happen to you, like, real soon. Like, Bro, I feel like everything shows your death. You <laughs> see a ghostly true. version of yourself, you're going to die. <laughs> like, it just, it's a lot. Yep, that sounds like my big booty Mothman. Hmm. Makes you wonder if that's what it's based off of. Or Mothman's based off of? That's what I'm saying. That Mothman yeah. was based off of this. I mean, this would have been much older I, than... I mean, Mothman's kind of like... Like I said, like when I did the Mothman, it like, it's like different cryptids like mixed together. Like the mm-hmm. Owl Man and like some type right, of... Right, you said there's getting... a lot of them down in West Virginia. Yeah. and We got to make that like our big goal for the Patreon. Going to the Mothman Museum? Go down to West Please. Virginia and take a picture with the booth. We got to do that. <laughs> yes. Oh, that cake. Cake, 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 cake. Oh, my God. So, I know you're asking yourself, how does one keep away from these vicious creatures? It sounds like you don't. <laughs> While you're... Just admit that your time is now. <laughs> While you're wandering around at night. Oh, goodness. Don't go outside after dark? I mean, basically, that's a good... That's a good... I don't think they need to be invited in they can probably just break into your house but you know who knows um well right stay out of like dark alleys or like hideaways on the streets and you know and or like i guess if you're in like romania or you're poland um they're not really you know the back don't 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 go into the woods at night please don't um stay away from thick bushes because that's where you like to hop out of um and this one is funny. It was funny to me when I when I read it. Um, okay. Walk down the middle of a road. The middle of the road. Walk down the middle of the road. Because? Um, don't stop. Don't look around. Especially when you're by graveyards. Oh, okay. Not understandable. Yeah. So, I guess if you stay in the center of the road, it's... Uh, safer and they probably you can see if they were would be coming out to attack you but as long as you keep moving and don't like distract yourself just look forward and keep walking and make sure there's no i mean uh, that's tough now because just imagine traffic (laughs) walking around oh my god in the middle of the street at night (laughs) what the fuck are you doing out the street oh my god but that's just it. You just um. That's basically how you can avoid them. This reminds me of the Cold War crap. Hey, there's a bomb coming. Just hide under the desk. It doesn't make any sense, but we're gonna do it. Basically. Oh my god. So that's how you can avoid them. Well, there are things that you can do to defeat these creatures as well. Oh, okay. Here we go. So, tale goes that if you are brave enough. That you can um, bring the first spirit that had died back to the Straza. Oh. By sleeping in their grave at night. Oh. <laughs> all night. Oh. Until you hear three crows from a rooster. 
the th- uh, th- until you hear the third crow of a rooster. So you have to stay into in that grave. With the body? No. So, so the strays. Also, are- also, what if the baby? Okay, what if my baby was born with too many teeth? Mm. And I put it in a grown up can't fit in that grave. That is a tiny grave. You got fold yourself up. I don't know. Some, make it. I'm gonna just lay next to it and be like, "Hey, look at me." But no, this is actually you're supposed to do this when the <clears throat> when they're out hunting. So do this at night when they're out of their grave. So put yourself at risk. Yeah, but they're not gonna come back to their grave. Just go like when they, when you see them leave the grave. Just hop in their grave. They can't get into their grave because you're already in it. Like they're just like, <laughs> <laughs> they're just like I'm sorry. They can't get into your grave because you're there. They're like they darn. like go by and they're like, ah, oh, damn it, <laughs> not again. <laughs> What's that? You move your feet, you lose your seat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, buddy, you got up in my seat now. You go. Oh, stop. Stupid. Oh my god. But um, also ready to tell that if uh, that people. When they buried people who they thought were these creatures, they would bury them face down. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's pretty common in old times. And then they would put a sickle behind their neck so that they couldn't rise back up. So it would, like, behead the the body if... Yo, that is such a useful tool for the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) Why have we not been doing this? If you just put a sickle, or not even a sickle, you know what you could do? Use some like uh, razor wire. Yes. And put it right at the neckline at every single coffin. When they go in there, listen, I love you, Grandma, but if you come back, I'm going to need you to not come back. <laughs> You're going to die as soon as you wake up. Thank you. I'm going to have to have you like just force yourself through the little, and then you're, you're headed, and then we don't have to worry about the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> there you go. There's my new plan, so I don't come back as a zombie. When I die, you just have to like... You have to impart this. I'm going to leave it up to you to explain this to my father. <laughs> Why <laughs> I need to have a line of razor wire strung across the the coffin. Oh Though, honestly, I honestly, I, fool, I vibe more with the concept of uh, being cremated. Oh, yeah, definitely. Put, turn me into a diamond or something. I don't know. Something useful. <laughs> Oh goodness! Um, but yo, that's such a good idea. I know it is really cool. It's a really that's cool brilliant. idea. I do like that. It idea. used to be like, oh, they're like, oh, we we buried them face down so that like the ghost or the zombie would get confused and not know whose house to go to. Like no, nah. and I'm like nah, just get the behead him. He's done. Yeah, and, um, they are some are beheaded before they are buried, and their heads like placed in a different grave. Also a good idea. Yeah, just just in case you never know. Um, this is also a funny way to uh, defend yourself against uh, Estreza. Um, you can slap them with your left hand, and I guess it protects you from something because the left hand is also evil. I guess I'm not okay. sure. Okay, I'm not sure. I'm left-handed, so I'm evil anyway. So yeah, <laughs> whatever. You're evil. My left. Oh yeah, I'm left-handed. You're just your left hand. Is that like a? Tie into jerking off. No, it's a lefty thing. I guess. Oh, okay. Like in the olden day, people people who were left like seen as left handed, they were seen as being evil because. Oh wow! I never knew that. Because you know, a lot of people are right handed, and like every mostly everybody's right handed, but a certain like was it twelve percent? It's pretty small. Yeah, like twelve percent of the population. I think is like left handed. Well, I didn't realize how difficult of a situation it would be for a person who's left handed to teach a right handed child how to write. Look. 
It's until terrible. you told me about it, and I was like, "Oh, damn!" Like I, I like I know how to hold a pencil, but apparently, even to left-handed people, I hold my pencil wrong. Oh. So we got those little cute things that hold. Yeah, those little right pencil spot. grips. I yeah. got. I like. I think I know how to hold a pencil. I don't fucking know. whatever. Oh, <laughs> now there's another. <clears throat> there's another method to uh, preventing these creatures from rising. It's by putting a flint in their mouth after after you i guess you have to exhume the body first and then and blow them up no you have to put flint i just put a piece of flint in their mouth no 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 um put flint in their mouth bury them again um outside of the village and you got to rebury it in the presence of I've a priest i've never heard of flint having like magical parties like magical property. Yeah, I'm not sure. Of all the stones, no one ever uses flint. You can. There's another thing you can put an, <clears throat> a piece of paper with the word Jesus written on it underneath of the the strays's tongue, and that would prevent them from rising as well. So yeah, that's a that's a thing. Um, so I have a funny tale. Okay. It's not a funny tale. It's a funny like. Something else that happens. So, Anecdote? yeah, I guess you could say that. So, Straza are known to visit witches' sabbaths. Okay. Um, and they fight each other. Mm-hmm. And at the sabbaths, I'm not sure if it's the witches in the, in the the Straza or the just the Straza that the fight at the sabbaths. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. There wasn't really um. Explained <laughs> while I was reading it, but um, if a human or uh, I guess a mortal stumbles on the Sabbath and they see this fight going on, then they themselves are beaten up. And when dawn approaches, they lose all their memories from the event. And I don't know why it was just funny, like. It's it's just like stumbling across like a street fight, mm-hmm. and then you're just staring at it, and then the people in the street fight see you staring, and they just start running after you to beat you up. <laughs> it, it's just like that's just what it reminds me of. I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> no, I didn't do anything. No. <laughs> oh my god. But um, that's definitely that's an interesting one for sure. That's what I got, and that's like, like I said, it's like. It's supposed to be like a, a origin for like vampires, but it's you can tell it's also like the Owl Man is based off of this somehow, and then right, freak, right, yeah. freaking Mothman has to be like somewhat involved in this as well. But that's what I have for my cryptid this week. Well, there you go. Ugh. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I. The, I don't know. That's pretty good. I liked your story. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> and uh, like everything we always talk about, we got our website that has all of our links to everything under the sun these days. Yes. If you didn't hear in the beginning of the episode, it is whenkillersgetcaught.com. 
And we're going to be launching the Patreon on August 1st. August 1st, lots to do. And you'll get a free 30-minute episode every week. And that's just the lowest tier of us talking about conspiracy theories. Yes, which you know how much Brittany loves to talk about. We'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm open-minded. Yes. Uh, but yeah, for anybody who was listening from the beginning, I do want to let you know today's source material is a lot. Uh, so I'm just going to go through. I read the Guiana Massacre, the eyewitness account by Charles Cross, Lawrence Stern, uh, Richard Harwood, and Frank Johnston. I actually did a Freedom of Information Act uh, request and used the Jonestown FBI files. You can get them. Oh, really? Um, the Suicide Cult, the Inside Story of the People's Temple Sect and Massacre by Marshall Kildiff, A Thousand Lives by Julia Skiris. Uh, Raven, the untold story of Reverend Jim Jones and his people. That is by John Jacobs and Tom Reederman. The One Leas, One Alive by Catherine Hyacinth Thrash. Uh, and They Were Gone, Teenagers of People's Temple by Judy Bebelar and Ron Cabral. Salvation and Suicide by David Chittister. And Cult City by Daniel Flynn. Mm. So, yeah. The more that I get into these things, the more outlandish list of things that I have. At some point, I'm going to put these all on the website. Right, yeah. But... <sighs> There's so much to do and so little time in a week. <laughs> but thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes. Thank you, guys. Um, oh, I guess give us a little blurb as well. If you want to email us anytime during the week, uh, you can email us at cultpodcast at gmail.com. Yep, yep. You can find Ms. Brittany on TikTok uh, at cultpodcast. Um, you can find me on Twitch at foxytrainer. Every Sunday, 6 p.m. I'm trying to make it 6 p.m. Okay. I try to make it to 6 p.m. <laughs> 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, just playing whatever or scary games. I try to find. I'm trying to find more scary games yeah. to play. Um, but anything else? That's it, right? That's our general stuff. Yeah. Links to all those things can be found through the website. So Absolutely. Just go to the website. Check it out. <laughs> and have a good night. Bye.